We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 4 today. Beginning with verse 11, as we continue our August series. Last several years in August, August has become one of the three um, parts of our liturgical calendar as a church that we set apart through weekly, bi-weekly communion. The other two times are Advent and Easter, and because we believe that those three times uh, allow us to um, enter into the rhythm of God's own mission in Jesus Christ, according to which we believe that since Christ came and took on flesh, which we celebrated at Advent, in order to redeem for himself a special people, which is what we are celebrating at Easter, he equips them and trains them and then sends them, which is what we remember and celebrate in August. In August, we take time out to remember and to refresh our understanding of the great commission that we have been given for which we have been saved, for which by the Spirit and the Word and the sacrament we have been equipped, trained, gathered as a local congregation of Christ's worldwide body and sent into every cubic inch of Christ's kingdom. As we have said before, According to God's revelation of his mission in Jesus Christ, we are here, this congregation, this particular people, we are here because God so loved Flintstone, because God so loved Chattanooga Valley. In our consumeristic culture, it is so hard for us to remember that we are not the end game. The people around us are, in fact, the target. So in August, we consider what does it mean to live faithfully in this world according to that commission as God's people. This month, we are considering the claim that central to living faithfully and central to living relevantly to our commission as disciples of Jesus Christ in this world and for this world is the call and the command to remember and to honor and to celebrate the Sabbath Lord's Day. Now, I recognize that that assertion is a little bit touchy in our circles. After all, since Christ has finished it, don't I get to do anything I want with the time I have? So goes the thinking of some of us in this room. On the other hand, some are thinking, wait a minute, there is no obligation to grace. Aren't you... 
Aren't you working works in through the back door, so to speak? So no, I recognize that the claim is a touchy claim and perhaps an explosive claim, but I'm do, I do pray that over the last, over last week and the next couple weeks, we will grow to appreciate that central to our living faithfully and relevantly to our commission as disciples of Jesus Christ in this world and for this world is the call to remember, to honor, and to celebrate the Sabbath Lord's Day. For I believe that by the Sabbath Lord's Day, the Lord teaches and trains us first to cease from our own fretful labors and to rest in His labors. This learning to cease is a slow and, as some of us know, a very painful process. And as we slowly and painfully learn to cease from our fretfulness and our fears, and in fact to find our rest in His finished labors, what we find is that He raises us up together with Christ to celebrate the mighty works of His steadfast and powerful love, which is where we're going next week, and then grants us life and skill by His Spirit to actually participate in that continuing work, which we will study in two weeks. Last week we considered the centrality of the Sabbath because we believe that the, that the entirety of the Christian life is summed up in the two commands to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I hope that what we saw last week was that the, the, the command to remember and honor the Sabbath is the capstone that holds the two sides of that one arch together. It's the intersection where the love of God meets the love of the world. His love for the world. Today we will consider the very hard work of resting in the finished work of the triune God's great love. It's hard work because like ceasing from our fretful labors, resting in the finished labors of God's great love does not come naturally to us. The lies of our culture about what authentic spirituality is, notwithstanding. To cease from our labors and to rest in God's labors simply does not feel right. It doesn't seem reasonable. It doesn't sound right. And to most of us, it doesn't look right to our natural instincts. So, with that extended Recap and intro, let us look at our passage. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 11 and reading to verse 16. I I realized that in some of the documents I um, produced, um, I had a typo which said verse 17, but if you have your Bibles open, you'll realize that there is no such thing as a chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, vision, to the division of soul and of spirit, of, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, this is a God's good word to us today. Let us come to him in prayer. And so, Father, we pray that you indeed would meet us, that you indeed would um, speak to us by this, your word that we have before us. Strengthen us by your spirit to stand still in the light of your word. Grant us the strength and the courage to allow your word to shine in us and so change us. Protect us from error and feast us upon the wonders of your love for us in Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, of course, um, we've talked about Narnia. And I want you to go back in your mind to, if you have read the stories, to when Lucy, playing hide and seek, goes into that room and sees that wardrobe there. You know the story. All the other Pevensey kids are running around the house seeking where everyone is hiding. And she steps into the wardrobe. And you know the story. She goes back through the wardrobe hoping to find the back. But she doesn't find the back of the wardrobe. She finds another place in another time. A place where it's always winter and never Christmas. The land of Narnia. You remember that it's a timeless place. We love the image of her going through. We love the story of the Pevensey kids in Narnia. But I want you to remember what happens when Lucy comes back. So she's met um, the fawn. She's had tea with him and she comes back. Believing that she's been gone for hours, she stumbles out of the wardrobe and she says, I'm back, I'm back, here I am, here I am. But it's only been moments. And the kids are like, Lucy, what, what are you doing? We've only just started. No, no, I've been away for hours, she says. No, Lucy, I just finished counting. Oh, you won't believe where I've been. You've been in the wardrobe, Lucy. No, I've been to Narnia. 
I've met people and I've had tea. And you remember what Edmund does. He ridicules her because it's simply not reasonable. What reasonable person would believe that you could actually walk into a wardrobe and enter into another land? And so he ridicules her. And the others are conflicted because they don't want to hurt their sweet little sister, but they agree with Edmund. She's being silly. There's something of that dynamic with going on here as we speak about the mystery of the church and in these couple weeks, the distinctive mystery of the Sabbath. Because what we are claiming in this notion of Sabbath and Lord's Day is that we are, when we enter into those doors, actually entering into another time and another space, another dimension. We are actually entering into the rest-giving, refreshing presence of the living, reigning, yet unseen God. We are saying things that simply don't seem reasonable. We are acting on things that simply don't seem reasonable. And here's the rub. There's a reason that this exhortation is preserved for us in God's word in the New Testament. Because quite frankly... The call to remember and to honor and to celebrate the Sabbath does not seem reasonable to us. It, it seems really quite absurd. It seems quite childish. It's fine, Lucy, for you to play make-believe. But there's a limit. You have to know when to stop. But if Narnia is real, then it's quite reasonable for Lucy to go on and on and on about it. If the king and his kingdom is real, if he is living and loving and reigning today, to make all things new. And if it is true that whenever and wherever his people are gathered, there you see the king and his kingdom, then brothers and sisters, it makes sense for us to remember and to honor and to celebrate the Sabbath and to go on and on and on and on about the wonders of it all. You see, because resting is a part of the flourishing human life that God himself has made. It's, it's a part of the disciples' flourishing human life for which our world hungers and thirsts. And so, this rest 
is absolutely necessary and urgent, and it is worth fighting for and striving for. Indeed, it's a matter of life and death. Notice what our text says. This is like fingers on the chalkboard, and I realize that many of you have never experienced that. Now they actually, are you ready for this? This This is not my notes. This is really funny. There are some teachers who are so concerned that their kids understand that expression that they actually bring chalkboards so they can go, It's so important. This verse is like fingers on the chalkboard to us. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. This striving is a theme that that the writer has been developing since the middle of chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and he quotes Psalm 95, and we'll look at that here in just a moment. But then after quoting that in verse 12, he says, so take care, brothers and sisters. Take care, y'all. And then a couple words later, exhort one another, y'all. And then a few verses later as we get into chapter 4, so fear y'all, because missing this is dangerous. We should be terrified that we're missing this opportunity. Talk about FOMO. Fear. And then, of course, our our verse here, strive y'all. Take care, exhort, fear, strive. Those don't sound like grace words. They sound unnerving. They sound like I might have to, like, work. But I thought we were all about grace. But brothers and sisters, you understand that these exhortations are possible because of grace. Because of grace, we can take care. Because of grace, we can exhort one another. Because of grace, we can rightly fear. Because of grace, we can strive. And it's not just striving, but it's striving together. Exhort one another. Take care, brothers and sisters. Let us fear. Why? Because, you see, the call to believing obedience is terrifying. The call to believing obedience comes to us through the Word. Which is why, in verse 12, our pastor goes, Strive, because, after all, The Word of God is living and active. It is not static and stale and is most assuredly not boring. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourselves bored and yawning in the face of God's Word, then I assure you, 
that you are not engaging with the word of the living God. Because it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it pierces. So here, here, if you think in terms of, in terms of our worldview, and if you think of the language that's being used here, you think of this huge two-edged sword that's going on here. But then notice what that two-edged sword does. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit. Brothers and sisters, that is one skilled surgeon with one refined scalpel. But it's a two-edged sword. Discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reason we must strive is because when we encounter the word, we feel ourselves exposed. And so our natural inclination, rebels that we are, is to recoil. To recoil from the prick, to recoil from the pierce, to recoil from the exposure. In fact, that part of our passage, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are laid bare. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The language is, some of you like watching action movies, and so some of you like, you know, for example, Jackie Chan or whoever it is, Chuck Norris, whoever it is, and here they are, and they don't have a weapon, but there's a guy with a knife, and he's going to slash them to pieces, and then bada-bing, bada-boom, next thing we know, the knife is out of his hand, and it's being held at his throat. That is the image of verse 13. The image of verse 13 is that we've been wrestling with an angel. We've been wrestling with the truth of God. And we find ourselves flat on our back, breathing hard with a knife touching our throat. Now who's in charge, says the word of God. Such an encounter is terrifying. And so we need to take care. We need to exhort. We need to fear. We need to strive. It's hard work, this remembering, this honoring, this resisting the impulse to work one more hour, one more day, to say just one more word, to win just one more person to my viewpoint, to fret more, to fear more. It's hard work. The cultural current of cynicism, fear, and suspicion, and violence is a powerful force. It's hard work, this entering into that rest beyond ceasing from our own impulse to work for just one hour, to say just one more word, to have the last word. It's even harder work to step into the rest that has been secured and provided. So hard, in fact, that we must take care and exhort one another and strive together. To enter that rest. That's a strange expression Enter that rest to our ears. Because 
ceasing is not something you do. Ceasing is actually something we don't do in terms of how we naturally hear that word. Resting is not something we do. Resting is something that we do not do. Moreover, resting is not something you enter. Resting is something we don't do. And so, we veg in front of the TV or take a nap. But we have to understand that these Hebrew notions, these are Hebrew notions of ceasing and resting, and they are substantive and active. Ceasing is an active discipline that must be cultivated by faith in the powerful working of the Spirit. We must learn how to exert force upon the break of our souls and our lives. We must learn the skill of knowing when to put on the break. And any of you who know that I'm in the throes of of teaching someone how to drive knows that I come by that illustration painfully. No accidents yet. No, he is a very good driver. And this rest is also substantive. It's very interesting. You remember, the language of the Sabbath rest comes to us from Genesis chapter 2. And um, in Genesis chapter 2, remember this. We, we tend to think this way. When we remember it, we tend to think, on the sixth day, God finished his work. And on the seventh day, he rested. But if you go back and you read Genesis chapter 2, you will notice that it doesn't say that. Genesis chapter 2 opens by saying, and on the seventh day God finished his work and rested. And so the rabbi commentators, the Jewish commentators on that passage say, while we think that means the Lord just chilled and watched the football game, the rabbi said, no, no, no. The crowning glory of God's creation was the creation of a time and space of menua. A time and space of stillness. It's the word we encounter in Psalm 23. He leads me beside waters of stillness. It was an actual act of creation according to rabbinic tradition. Which helps explain The language of Jesus recorded for us in Mark chapter 2. Remember, the Sabbath was made for man. It was an actual time for man to enter into the presence of God and to rest in his completed work. And as we will see in the next couple weeks, actually celebrate it with him and participate in it with him. It is a rich gift of the Father's love to us. And so why is it so urgent? And this is where we get into Psalm 95. The context of Psalm 95 is actually Exodus chapter 17. It is so important that we strive to enter this rest so that we do not destroy ourselves and the hope of the world world along with ourselves. That's the language of verse 11. So that no one may destroy themselves by the same sort 
of apathy. That's a literal translation of the last part of verse 11. So that no one may destroy themselves by the same sort of apathy. By the same sort of of indifference. By the same sort of unbelief. By the same sort of disobedience. Apathene is the word that is there. And so there's the episode in Exodus chapter 17. The, the, the uh, children of Israel, all however many million of them, have been wandering around in the wilderness. And they're groaning and complaining in chapter 16 of there's no bread. And then they get bread every day, twice on, Saturday, on, on Friday. Enough for, the, for Friday as well as the Sabbath. It's an amazing thing. Every day. There's no visible source of food. So then that episode is gone. Chapter 17 of Exodus. We move. The people move and they come to Rephidim. And the people are looking around and they're saying, Dude! We got bread. Now we don't have water. What? You brought us out here to kill us? Moses, by this time, is very tired. The place is known as Meribah and Massah, which means grumbling and rebellion. Now, in fairness to the Israelites, who I have never really given a lot of um, time for, but in fairness to the Israelites, the fact of the matter is there is no visible source of water. It's quite reasonable for them to believe that they are going to die. Except that they're failing to account for the power of their God. You see, we grumble and we complain and we rebel when we've lost sight of the power and the presence of our God. The upshot is that the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord will endure. It will accomplish its purposes. Even while we find ourselves maybe facing the consequences of our sin and the fear of our eyes of flesh, He will endure. And He will accomplish its purposes. The people of Israel are always doing this. When they first came to the land of promise, they said, go and get them. And they said, there are giants in the land, we can't go. Bread in the wilderness, water in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, the warning here in Hebrews is as current for us as it was for them. For our culture has carefully trained us, and so it feels quite natural to us to only trust what we can see. We would be right there with the Israelites and complaining about no bread and no water and blaming Moses for being inept or even intentionally leading these millions of people into the wilderness to destroy them. Which is why one man says, in a uh, one character in a Tom Stoppard uh, play, says that the atheism or agnosticism bred in us by our culture, that is the boredom which our culture breeds in us, 
and our stubborn refusal to look, to see, and wonder is, here's the quote, a sort of crutch for those who can't bear the reality of God. It was reasonable for them. And there is, this re- there is a reason for this warning by the writer to the Hebrews. We face the same sort of danger of destroying ourselves by the same sort of disobedience. By considering our circumstances only by what our eyes can see and failing to remember that on the sixth day, God finished his work. Excuse me, on the seventh day, God finished his work and he rested. To a person, the people in the wilderness would have, prof- would have professed with their mouth their belief and their trust in Yahweh. After all, he's the God of our fathers. But the decisions they repeatedly make in the wilderness reveal a stubborn commitment on their part to rely on their own eyes and the wisdom they'd learned in Egypt. And so we wonder, is there, we wonder where the food is going to come? For tonight's meal? Where the money's going to come from to pay the bills? Where the job's going to come from? Where the strength and the energy is going to come from? Perhaps you're fretting because your child has gotten the wrong teacher. Or perhaps the wrong school. Perhaps the wrong doctor. Perhaps you're fretting because you've gotten the wrong spouse. Perhaps, like in another time, you're fretting because there is no wine for the wedding. Brothers and sisters, we honor and remember and celebrate the Sabbath. Because, as Mary said, this is Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. You see, every Sabbath, Lord's Day, gives us the opportunity to consider our circumstances again and ask, what has God done? Is God able? Has he shown himself to be able this week? To face, it gives us the opportunity to face the whispers of the serpent that echo in our ears. Has God really said Has God really wrought? Does God really care? Is he really wise enough for life in 21st century North America? Or are his designs now outdated? It's hard work. Our fears and worries are not imagined. They are quite reasonable responses to what our eyes of flesh see. And so in his great mercy, he has created for us a time to be reminded, I have finished my work. Which is exactly where our passage goes. Since then, we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens to where? Into the rest of the triune God's finished work. He has blazed the trail, the writer to the Hebrews will tell us in another place. He shows us the way, indeed he carries us along the way. Brothers and sisters, hear me. The good news is not that because Jesus finished, I don't have to do anything. The good news is because Jesus is finished, now I can. Now I can strive without the worry that my striving will be in vain. Because Jesus, my great high priest, has already passed through the heavens. And so we can hold our confession with confidence and find grace and help in our time of need. Let's go to him and in prayer enter into that rest together with him.